So it is my great privilege this morning to continue the journey of Galatians. So Sam has preached Galatians 1 and 2. Today we're looking at Galatians 3. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. So I've got a lot of reading to get through. And I just wanted to start by saying I'll be drawing heavily from these people. You can pop them up, Steve. Yes, we've got Beth Moore. John Stott, N.T. Wright, and Eugene Peterson. And isn't that just the most beautiful photo of him? And if you look on the internet, they're all like that. Like he is a guy just high on the joy of the Lord. So if you want to do some extra reading, uh, I would point you to those people. They know what they're talking about. So just to recap, the book of Galatians was written by Paul to the church at Galatia. And Paul was really frustrated that the message of grace that Jesus had brought was being distorted. And so he was passionately trying to communicate the truth and remind them of the truth. So Christianity began as a Jewish religion in Jerusalem. And then Peter is given a vision and he's commissioned by God to go and take the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles. So that's the non-Jewish folk, that's you and me. But this, this of course, caused a huge debate because the Jewish Christians had been set apart by the Jewish law and they had been God's people historically and they followed the law, which was the Torah. And there was all sorts of things that set them apart, like the Sabbath, eating practices, circumcision, which thankfully I'm not going to be going into in great depth this morning. And so these Jewish Christians were saying to these new Christians, well, hang on, if you want to be part of God's family, you are going to have to follow the Jewish law. And they were trying to bring these things back in. And so they were coming to the church at Galatia and they were undermining Paul's teaching. And they were saying, you're going to have to get circumcised. And so Paul was totally exasperated because what they were doing was, was nullifying the power of what Jesus had done on the cross. This was a history-altering moment, the cross. And these new Christians had understood at the beginning that we are saved by grace, that it's faith in Jesus that makes us right with God. But now, because these people were coming and, you know, telling them they had to do this and that, they were moving back to the law and they were moving back to these other practices, thinking that these were the things that made them right with God. And so Paul spends the first couple of chapters of Galatians warming up, and then in Galatians 3, he's really letting rip. So we're going to look. It says this, Galatians 3, 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you've heard? So in this passage, he asks a bunch of rhetorical, hard-hitting questions to point out just how absurd this move back to the law is in light of the fact that Jesus has brought freedom. He's trying to remind them that they did not receive the Spirit because of their good behavior. They didn't receive it because of the law. In fact, they weren't that well behaved and they didn't do a good job of following the law. They received the Spirit because of faith in Jesus. 
Now, in the 1800s, there is this amazing guy called Charles Blondin. You may have heard of him. He was a tightrope walker, which has got to be one of the coolest jobs. And he set up a rope across Niagara Falls, which is obviously very high. And he he said, yep, I'm going to walk across. And so the place was absolutely packed with people. And, you know, they were placing bets, like, would he make it across or would he plummet to his death? He had no safety net. He had no one there to catch him. It was just a guy with a lot of courage and this amazing gift of balancing. And so he set out and he made it across. Got a picture here of Charles. And he did this trick again and again and again over the years. And each time it got slightly more challenging. One time he walked backwards. One time he hung from the rope. One time he took a little stool and sat on the rope on the stool can't quite fathom how that would work. He even cooked an omelette on the rope and ate it before coming back off the rope. So it's completely extraordinary. But his most famous feat is when he talked his business manager, Harry, into climbing onto his back and he said, I'm going to walk across this tight rope with Harry on my back. Now, just for the record, I would be impressed if Sam managed to talk our business manager, Steve, onto his back and, and walk around with him, even not on a tight rope. <laughs> So this is actually totally next level. And once Harry climbed on his back, this is what apparently he said to Harry. Look up, Harry. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. So thankfully, Harry did what he was told. He clung on to Charles's back, and this is what happened. They made it across. But imagine if the story had been different. Imagine if they've got halfway across and Harry, just high on the adrenaline rush and endorphins, he'd feeling all empowered, had said to Charles, hang on, I'm going to climb off now because I think I've actually got this. Like I've seen you do it and I think I know how to do it. Imagine if he'd climbed down and he'd thought, you know what, I'm pretty agile, I'm pretty strong. Yep, I can do this. That probably would have been his last thought because I don't think he would have made it across. The truth was he was relying 100% on Charles. He was clinging to his back. He was relying on him. And N.T. Wright, New Testament theologian, likens this situation with Charles and Harry to this situation here with the Galatians. Because they had started off their faith understanding that they needed to cling to the back of Jesus, that it was only through Jesus that they were made right with God. But then somehow along the way, they decided to climb off the back of Jesus and just go at it on their own, thinking that through their own strength, through the law, through their works, that they could somehow make it to salvation. And to us now, it seems completely ridiculous, but it's actually also pretty understandable because how often do we climb off the back of Jesus? How often do we think, oh no, I think I can do this in my own strength. I'm independent, I'm self-sufficient, I've got this, and we climb off and we try. How often do we strive and try to just be a little better or a little kinder, to work a little harder or give a little more? And it's not that those things aren't good, but those are not the things that make us right with God. It's faith in Jesus that makes us right with God. All right, continuing on in the passage, verse six, it says, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's meaning it's Abraham's belief in God that makes him right with God. 
Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So why is Paul talking about Abraham? Well, John Stott explains it's actually really clever to go back to Abraham because the people that were opposing Paul's teaching, they were looking to Moses as their teacher. Now, Moses had given the law to the Israelites. God gave it to Moses. Moses passed it on to the Israelites. And so Paul goes back to someone who predates Moses, who came way before Moses, and that is Abraham. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Abraham, he's an old guy when we meet him in the Bible, and he doesn't have any children, yet God comes to him and he makes him a promise. And this is a very, very important promise for us to get our heads around, wrap our hearts around, because it involves every single one of us. And you find the promise in Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a really important part. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know, God says, I will do this and I will do that. And so the inheritance given to Abraham in this moment is given by a promise. And that's important for us to remember. It's given by a promise. It wasn't anything that Abraham had done. It wasn't anything that he was going to do. It was simply given through a promise. So in Genesis 12, God makes the promise. And then in Genesis 15, we see him sealing the promise with a covenant. So he comes to Abraham and we can find it in Genesis 15. He says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abraham's pretty confused at this point, And he says to the Lord, like, how are you going to bless me? I I'm remain childless. And then there's this amazing moment where God takes Abraham outside. And he says, look up. This is in, in verse 5. He says, look up at the sky and count the stars. If you can because of course he can't, they're too numerous. And then he says, so shall your offspring be, meaning your descendants are gonna be as many as the stars in the sky, which you can't even count. It's so big. And then scripture tells us this, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Ah, so he believed him, like Abraham believed him, even though this seems completely crazy. Abraham's an old man married to a barren woman. They haven't had kids, yet God says, your descendants are gonna be as many as the stars. And he believed him. And there is so much power in those moments of faith when we say to God, I believe. You know, when we speak out our faith and we say, I believe in you, Jesus, and I believe your promises, they're for me, they're ongoing. So when I first really committed my heart back to God, and it wasn't that I'd had a faith crisis, I had just lived a very lukewarm existence, doing whatever I felt like, whenever I felt like. Well, when I really committed my heart to God, I thought, I'm going all in this time. So I went to Bible college, and and I ended up in this Christian concert with with a bunch of Christian friends. And I had been out of the Christian circles for ages. I didn't know any Christian artists. And this rap artist came onto the stage, and Rap is not normally my favorite genre of music, uh, but this was incredibly powerful. And I just want to play you a short clip um, from this concert. 
Well, this actually wasn't the concert, but you can find this one online. This was the song he sang. Come on, Steve. You can go like this if you want. Thank you, Aaron. And I just found this song so incredibly moving. So here I was and everyone is singing. Everyone's shouting it out, I believe. And I'm surrounded by this crowd of just believers. And I don't know the song, but in my heart, I'm just, I believe. And I'm having this amazing moment of God. And I really felt the Holy Spirit. And I just started weeping through the power of what it feels like when you speak out your faith. And after years of me being in the closet as kind of an undercover Christian, I was just like, I was out. And I just was like, yeah, I'm a raging Christian now, you know, and I'm not looking back. And it was like the I believe there was power in that. And there is so much power in when we speak out our faith, like Abraham did just here. He believed God. He took God at his word, which is what we can do. And this point is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. Testament. It's a pivotal point that when we believe that is what is counted as righteousness, that it's our faith in Jesus and in the promises of Jesus that makes us right with God. In Hebrews, there is a verse that says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So then God says to Abraham, I brought you out of this land and I'm going to give you this land. But Abraham says, well, how, how am I going to know that I will possess it? And so then this is where God makes a covenant. He's made the promise. Now he makes the covenant. He says to Abraham, go and grab a bunch of animals and he sacrifices them and he lays them out. And then the scripture tells us that he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And then while Abraham is asleep, he prophesies. So God says, okay, there's going to be some hard stuff up, up ahead. There's going to be slavery. There's going to be oppression. It's not, it's not going to be great. But there's also going to be good stuff. And, and there is going to be abundance up ahead. And that you are going to live to a long age. And you will go to your ancestors in peace. And so then that happens. And then there's a, the fiery smoking pot and a flaming torch appear. And they go past through the animals and that's when the covenant is cut and it says in Genesis 15 on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham he said I will give this land to your offspring promise made so that promise that he said when you look up and all those stars will be your descendants that promise has now officially been made the covenant has been cut when he said through you all nations will be blessed then the covenant is cut. It is sealed. And this promise is such, such good news for us because we fall into that category, the all nations category. 
We fall into that. That's us. And so as fellow believers in Jesus, we are now Abraham's offspring. We're now Abraham's children. So when God said, look up and count the stars, they're going to be your descendants. We are those stars. You are one of those stars. You were part of that promise. You are now Abraham's children. You are now his descendant. So we have to understand whatever else happens in all the books of the Bible, whatever else happens in all the dysfunctional parts of your life, you cannot change the promise that God made, that through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And that because of this promise, it means as God's people, we are blessed with a closeness to him. And how beautiful is that? It seems amazing to me that God put Abraham into a deep sleep. Um, He obviously didn't want Abraham to think he was being useful, that God needed Abraham. He, He obviously didn't need Abraham. Abraham wasn't even conscious. And so God does it fully and completely without him. The promise is all God's. If there's one thing that I really, really love, it's having a nap. Can I see a show of hands? Who else loves a nap? Like top three things in life, having a nap, you know? It's so good. And by the time I normally have a nap, it's because I'm really exhausted, overwhelmed. The walls are kind of starting to close in and everyone is annoying me, even myself, like I'm the most annoying. And so my beautiful husband allows me to go for a nap. And you know, the house is normally unraveled. Everything's everywhere. You know, the kids are climbing the curtains. And I just forget it all. I pretend it's not happening. And I just go and hop into bed. It's my happy place. And then sometimes when I wake up from the nap, things have happened. It's like little elves have been. And Sam and the boys have got really busy around the house. They might have put the washing on or hung it out. They might have emptied the dishwasher. They might have tidied their rooms or picked up 200,000 pieces of Lego. Whatever it is, they've made it beautiful. And sometimes, even better, they're not there. (laughs) They've gone out. I don't know where they are. It's peaceful. It's quiet. And I'm just so, so grateful to my husband in those moments. He's such a good man. And, and it's amazing because there is nothing better than going to sleep and waking up and the hard work has been done while you slept. There's nothing better. And so in light of that, this is such a gift that God gives Abraham. The fact that God puts him into a deep sleep and then he does the messy hard work of cutting the covenant. And it reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. There's those beautiful moments where God invites us to a place of rest and he continues doing the hard stuff. So the passage continues, verse 10, says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So here Paul is saying, again, we're made right with God through our faith, that Jesus redeemed us with the work he did on the cross. And and why? 
Why did he redeem us? So that the promise of the blessing given to Abraham can be a blessing for us too. So that his spirit can be given to us too. He's just really driving this point home. And then it continues in verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. This is the big clincher. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So the inheritance was given by a promise. The law was not given by a promise. So Paul's comparing the two. And and in this case, it's the timing that is everything. Because in Genesis 12, 12, the promise is given. We've got a little timeline here. And in Genesis 15, the covenant is sealed, the promise is sealed. And it's not until Exodus 20 that the law comes. There's 430 years different. Over and over in this chapter of Galatians, Paul reminds us there's nothing about the law that undoes what God already did in the promise. The promise to bless all the nations, it was already established when the law came along. It was already in motion. The wheels were already turning. The train had left the station. And it's like one of those moments when you put on your washing. You might be at a campsite or something or someone else's house. You put it on and then you go back and you realize you've missed a sock. And you grab it and you like you run back and you go to put the sock in, but it won't stop because, you know, there's those washing machines that like once you've started, the cycle's just going to see it out and you can't get the sock in. You've got to wait till the next round. But this is the thing. Nothing that the Lord did changed the promise that was already in motion. It had already started. The truth is we can't undo what God has already done. Nothing you can do can undo what Jesus has already done. There's no mistake that is great enough to undo it. Even when Abraham made a whole bunch of of bad decisions and he slept with Hagar, who, who wasn't his wife, it did not undo the promise because it was a covenant that was forever sealed. Nothing you've done can change that as a follower of Jesus, you are included in the promise. And nothing you have done can change God's faithfulness. God is faithful at his very core. He can't be anything but. He is so faithful. It's at the essence of who he is. God is the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same tomorrow. He doesn't have moody days. He doesn't have hungover days. He doesn't have hormonal days. You know, some of us know about those. You know, he's constant, steadfast, unchanging. He's totally and utterly faithful to his word. And maybe for some of you that is hard to trust because you've been around people that have broken your trust. Maybe you've been around a serial promise breaker and that just erodes away your ability to trust. Maybe you yourself have been a serial promise breaker and you can't imagine life another way. But I think when we can really grasp the fact that God is utterly unable to break his promises because he's so faithful, then it helps us get through those times when maybe other people have let us down and they've broken their promises to us. 
I have been so moved by the faithfulness of God, just reading this chapter and reflecting on my life, on the times when I have walked away from God and done everything in my own strength, he was there. And in the times when I was trying hard to honor him, he was there. And in the times in between, of which there are many, where I'm trying to honor him, but I'm falling short constantly and I'm hurting people and I'm being selfish and and I'm being proud and and I'm not um, softening my heart to him and and his will for my life. He is there. He's still there. It's impossible for me to do anything to get away from him. And his faithfulness is such that the moment I decide to suffer my heart, the moment I decide to come to him in humility, the moment I decide to ask for forgiveness, there is no lag between asking for the forgiveness and experiencing the grace. Every time, he's just always there with arms outstretched. There is no space in between asking for forgiveness and finding the grace of God. It's so moving. Timothy George, a theologian, says this, for Paul, it was crucial that this original covenant of promise be distinguished from the law of Moses. The law demands do this, but the promise grant says, accept this. And Often it's so much harder to just accept something than it is to do something. Because when we do something, we feel like we've done something. We feel like we can tick a box and we've achieved. We can think, yeah, I worked really hard for that and I earned it. But it isn't that because the promise says accept this. And accepting means that we need faith and we need trust and we need vulnerability and we need surrender. The law says, do this. The promise says, accept this. And this chapter of Galatians, it reminds us that our part in all of this is to believe it, to receive it, and to embrace it. And when we can do that, we can learn to live in the freedom that Jesus offers. The promise of God to Abraham was a gift of grace, a bestowal of grace. It wasn't a negotiation. He didn't say, you do this and then I'll do this. It was a gift of grace and it is a gift for all of us. So you might be wondering, and I know I was too, that if God's plan was always to have this huge multicultural family that were made right with him through faith in Jesus, then why did he give the law to the Israelites? And Paul speaks about this in the next passage. It's dense and it's kind of hard to understand, but we're going to have a look. So he says in verse 19, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The Bible Project did an outstanding job of helping me understand this passage. So Paul is explaining that God always intended the law to be a temporary measure. And the law had a negative 
and a positive uh, role. So negatively, the law really shone a light on the sin and rebellion of Israel because Israel was always rebelling against God and rebelling against the law. And the law shows us that just because they were God's chosen people doesn't mean they didn't make big mistakes. And I find this really comforting because when I look at the Israelites' mistakes, some of their big mistakes were much worse than my big mistakes. And so, you know, the law ended up pronouncing Israel guilty, and it pronounces all of humanity along with it guilty. Paul says, the law imprisoned everyone under the law of sin. But the laws also had a positive role. They were like a school teacher. And we love school teachers. We've got a lot of them in this church. And the school teacher was there to keep the Israelites in line until Abraham's seed the promised Messiah who was Jesus came along. And so when Jesus came along, he, um, he was the faithful Israelite. He was the one who fulfilled the purpose of the law because he was without sin. So he loved God fully and he loved people fully. He loved his neighbor. And so then he died and took the curse and the consequence of the failure and the sin on himself and he brought redemption. So through him, the blessing of God and God's spirit can come to all of us. So in a nutshell, the Lord didn't bring salvation, but it certainly made us aware of our need of salvation. And the really life-changing verse at the end of the passage is this one. It says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So now that faith has come, everything has changed. Now that Jesus has come, we can live in the freedom that he brings. We can live in the freedom of knowing that we are known by God and that we can know God, that we can walk with God and talk with God. We can be led and guided by his spirit and it will help us navigate our life. It's interesting the word guardian here. In some of the other translations, it says custodian. And it's one of those words where you can lose a bit of the meaning when you translate it from the Greek to the English. But um, Eugene Peterson in his book explains that the word custodian, it basically was someone in a Greek family who was paid to take the kids from the family to the school. So this was only in the wealthy families, but they hired someone to basically take the kids, drop them off at school to the teacher, and make sure they didn't get into any mischief or trouble along the way. So it wasn't the guardian's job to teach the kids. It was only their job to make sure they got there, they got there in one piece without any mischief. And so Paul is saying that's how the law works. It delivers us to the place of faith. It delivers us to the place where we meet Jesus. And this brings us to the last couple of um, verses in the chapter. And I think these verses are, without a doubt, some of the most revolutionary verses in the Bible. So hold on to your hats. says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is the male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and his heirs according to the promise. The radical truth communicated here is that we are all one in Jesus. That we are all equal in our need of salvation. We're all equal in the fact that we can't earn it and we don't deserve it. And we're all equal in the fact that God gives it to us freely. That he doesn't have favorites, that it's for all of us. 
Beth Moore says this, God's commitment to you predated you. How beautiful is that? His commitment to you predated you. God's promises were made to you long before all of your broken promises to him. And none of your broken promises can change the promise that he made. God doesn't just want closeness to us because he's faithful and he made this promise years and years and years ago. He loves us. He, he wants to be close to us because he loves us, because he loves us to the moon and beyond and beyond and beyond. It's his faithfulness and his affection for us that mean his promises will stand for eternity. I want to finish with a story about Eugene Peterson. So he is the guy who took the Bible and he translated it into what's called the message. And if you haven't looked at the message, I would highly recommend you delve into it. The message is a Bible written in really easy to understand English. And some of those passages have brought such revelation right to my core. But the whole translation of the Bible by Eugene, it started with the book of Galatians. It's because he was a pastor. He he wasn't just a writer. He had a pastor's heart and he was pastoring a congregation and they were not understanding the grace of God. They weren't living in freedom. They were trying to live under works and under the law. They didn't understand that they were made right with God through faith in Jesus. And so he desperately wanted them to walk into this place of freedom. So he thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm going to preach Galatians. Because if they can get their head around this book, then their lives will be different. Then they will live differently, that it will transform everything. And so he gathered a very small group. There was nothing flash about it. He just did it in his home. He had a small Bible study and he opened the book of Galatians. And the first week he was so discouraged because he said they were way more interested in their cups of teas and their cups of coffee than they were about the scripture. And so he went to his wife. He said, what am I going to do? They're not getting it. And then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll teach them Greek. Because if they could understand the Greek, then they will get how profound this revelation is, the profound what Paul is saying. His wife said, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And you know, wives do have this wisdom from time to time. And and so he thought, okay, yeah, no, that's not going to fly. So what he thought was, okay, I'm going to translate the words that Paul's written into my my own writing, and and I'm going to try and translate it into words that they can get. And so he teaches that the second week, he teaches a translation that he's written himself, that he's prayed about and thought about, and he did understand the Greek, so he had a lot of knowledge. And that second week, he came away so encouraged, because when he went to tidy up the teas and coffee, some of them weren't even drunk. They were half full because people were enthralled by the Word of God. And so began this journey for Eugene. And so he started by translating the whole book of Galatians. And then um, much later on, one of the guys that was in the original group rang him and said, I've been carrying around this handwritten copy of Galatians that you did so long ago. I'm so sick of Galatians. I need more. I need you to translate the entire Bible for me. And so he did. And that's where the message came from. But he knew that if we can understand Galatians, if we can understand what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, then we will learn to live in the grace and freedom of God. Hallelujah. We will learn to know that it's, that it's faith in Jesus. It's not what we do. It's not what we've done. It's always Jesus. We've got to be on his back. We've got to climb on and stay on. That's the only way.